Revelation 1, 9 through 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Before we jump into that text, let's let's pray. Uh, Father... We begin this morning, or we, not begin, we, we just read a text that gives us a very descriptive picture of Jesus in all his power and authority. And so as, as we open your word and as, as I speak, Lord, we, we, we enter into this space with the assumption that Jesus is king and authoritative, uh, the authority of everything that happens in this space this morning. This is his. And so help my words to honor him, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week I had a, an experience where I was, I was just overwhelmed by the goodness of God. And if you've been here long, uh, you know that I have, I've spoken at length about my love for In-N-Out Burger. And uh, sadly, In-N-Out Burger has not yet opened in Kansas City, which means the only way I'm, I'm ever able to eat In-N-Out is if I travel and so this week I was, I was doing some long-term planning and I realized that over the next eight months with the trips that I, I'm going to take with my family or work, uh, with all of those trips over the next eight months, I will be able to eat In-N-Out Burger each month for the next eight months. That, that God has orchestrated my family and work trips such that they are only in places where there are In-N-Out Burgers. God is good. Um, and if it's not clear that I'm, I'm mocking myself right now in this intro, let me, let me be clear. I am, I am mocking myself right now. Um, but what I love about In-N-Out Burger is they make one thing. If you go to In-N-Out Burger, you have one choice. It's you can have a cheeseburger. If you want anything else, you don't get it because they make cheeseburgers. And that's it. And despite their enormous success, 
right, in, in incredible success as a company, they've never ventured outside of, we make cheeseburgers. That's it. You want a chicken sandwich, that's why Chick-fil-A exists, right? That's another sermon that I will be glad to preach in another time. But you, they don't make anything else other than cheeseburgers, and they make the best cheeseburgers in the world. And if you disagree, you really need to do some heart evaluation. <laughs> and so you're probably wondering, what, is this, what does this have to do with a series on Revelation? Uh, you ready? Uh, church, we, we have one thing to offer the world, and nothing else. And oftentimes, the church tries to be a place that offers anything but the one thing. And what this series uh, in Revelation is about is ultimately refocusing back on the one thing the church is supposed to be about, the greatest gift the church has to offer this world. And so how we're going to unpack these 12 verses in Revelation 1 is, is basically two questions. One is, what is that one thing? And two, how do we get back to being about that one thing? So first, what, what's the one thing that the church has, has to offer? And so we're, we're in week two of a, of a series on the, just the first three chapters of, of Revelation. Um, and we're calling it a church for the, wor- uh, for the end of the world, which we sort of, you know, we, I made fun of that last week. It's sort of over the top. We, we know that. Um, and yet the first three chapters of Revelation sort of set the context for the rest of the book. And, and the moment Revelation was written, which is probably around A.D. 9, uh, 95, 96, was, I think, a day not like, unlike our own. There was, there was massive change happening within the culture of the church existed in. There were enormous pressures put on the church to abandon their core theology, to move into new directions. And even though in many places the church was growing and, and tasting enormous success, the church was, was beginning to enter a season where it would, it would be tested to see, will it, it lean into its core mission or will it, will it crumble under the weight of a culture that was putting enormous pressure on it. And no doubt Christians in that day, they were worried, they were uncertain, they were fearful. And so, so Jesus, in Revelation, is speaking his final word to the church before he comes back for a second time. And so Revelation begins with the experience of this man named John. John was a man who lived with Jesus he walked with Jesus, he was discipled with Jesus, he saw Jesus put on a cross, and he claims that he saw Jesus die and raise back to life. John wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote the three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And so John gave his life to serve the mission of the church because he had encountered this person, Jesus. He planted churches, he led churches, he served churches. And eventually John was such an influential leader that the state had enough of him. And so they forced him into exile. They forced him to live alone on this island called Patmos, in exile. In that day, prisons were sometimes just islands. You would just put someone on an island. They couldn't get off of it. And that's where John is, away from his churches, away from his community, away from the people that he had served in, in the local church. And yet, even though John's alone and, and exiled from his church community, John continues the pattern that he, he adopted and lived in those church communities by, by getting up on Sunday morning to, to worship, even though he was by himself. And we're told this in this phrase, I got up, I was in the spirit on the Lord's, the Lord's day. That's the, that's the phrase Christians began to use around Sunday morning worship. It was the Lord's day. And this word was sort of a, a, a grab away from and, a, and sort of a poke at the Roman culture. Because in, in Roman culture, the Lord's day was a day to worship Caesar. 
It was a feast or a, a moment in which the Roman culture would gather around their Lord, Caesar, and have a Lord's Day. And John, in poking at this powerful figure, the, the most powerful person in the world, Caesar of Rome, says, no, the Lord's Day is Jesus' Day. And I was, spirit, I was in the Spirit on Jesus' Day on a Sunday morning, worshiping, when suddenly the presence of Jesus visited him in physical form and spoke to him. And everything that Jesus spoke to John and showed John is the book of Revelation, is this, this strange book that, that has perplexed the church for 2,000 years. But this isn't a private revelation for John. This isn't like, John, I want to speak to you. This revelation is for the church. And that's why the first thing Jesus says to John is write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And in, in, in Hebrew thoughts and in, in the Bible's kind of language, seven doesn't just mean there were only seven churches Jesus wanted to speak to. Seven was a, a number of wholeness. This is a letter to go to the entire church with particular communities that John had served to, to be spoken to directly to serve as a representative of the church global. So Revelation is a book to the church. So John hears his voice, he turns around, and he sees a vision of Jesus. And this is the first thing we read about what he sees in verse 12. John says, I, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So he turns around and he sees Jesus in the midst of, of seven lampstands. And we immediately say, why lampstands? And whenever I think of lampstands, the first image that comes to mind is, uh, is unfortunately, it's Ikea. And I don't know if you've been to Ikea and you've wandered around that labyrinth. Uh, but the section that's full of all their lamps and lighting fixtures is just before the end of Ikea. Like once you get to the lighting fixtures... It's like a light that like you're almost, you're almost out. Like whenever I get to the lampstands, I'm like, I, I'm almost done. I almost get to escape the Swedish prison. <laughs> so that, that's my first. And yet like all of this light, you know, it's, it's sort of, it is kind of, of interesting just to walk through. And that's what John sees is these lights. And he sees Jesus in the midst of these, these lampstands. And we're told in verse 20, these seven lampstands are the seven churches. The, the, image, the first image of the church we get in Revelation is that it is a lampstand. We as Christ's community, we are a lampstand. So what does that mean? And it primarily means two things. First, it's a clear callback back to something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. When he, he spoke to his disciples, which would one day to become his church, he said to them, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole House. And throughout the entire New Testament, this image of the church being light is meant to say that like the church is to be light in darkness, to be a guide to, to, towards life, right, towards God. Um, so that's one thing that lampstands mean, but they mean something else in Revelation. So they mean that, you know, we're, the church is to be the light of the world. That's one meaning of lampstand. The other is that if you were to, if you were to just search the word lampstand through the entire Bible, you would, it really only appears twice, here in Revelation, and a ton in the book of Exodus. And in Exodus, they're building something called a tabernacle, which was a tent. It was basically a movable temple 
where the people of God, as they were leaving Egypt and going into the promised land, would meet in the presence of God. God would be present, and they could go there and meet with the presence of God. And in that tabernacle, that tent, was a, was a lampstand, and that lampstand was to be lit, and that light was to be a symbol that God was present here. God is present in this place, and the lampstand was a symbol of that. And so now here in Revelation, for the church to be a lampstand is, to be, is that we are the presence of God. The church is now the temple. The New Testament is explicit about this in a number of places. Where the presence of God dwells now is with his church. And so church, the one thing we have to offer this world is the presence of God. If the church is not the presence of God, there is nowhere to find. That's the only thing we have. Everything else is secondary. The Revelation central image chosen for the church, a lampstand, is that we are to be the presence of God to the world. We are to be his light, his presence. That's all we have to offer. And so are we offering it? How many people today would look at the church or would connect the church to the presence of God? I think in most cases, like, the opposite is true, right? This, this sort of the trend of spiritual, not religious, this thought of, if I find God, I'm not going to go to church. I'm going to go, it's an individualistic experience, right? I go off into nature, or I find God somewhere else. I go individual, like, I'm out somewhere, you know, almost like John and Patmos. I'm by myself, then God visits. I don't need the church for that. And yet, Revelation would say, no, that's not right. John gets this presence of Jesus moment to speak to the church, which is to be a lampstand, to be the presence of God in this world. Revelation is a book to the church. And so that, that raises the question, like, are we actually the presence of God in the world? Uh, in 2007, the movie The Diving Bell and the Butterfly was released, which details the story of the editor-in-chief of Elle magazine, who, who suffered a, a very serious uh, seizure stroke. And Caesar, it shut down his entire body, except for, except for one of his eyes. It was the only part of his body that could still be used. And this is a real condition. It's called locked-in syndrome. And what it is is the person is still fully coherent within their, their body, but they can't get their body to respond to their hearts, to the actions they want to, to do. Like there's, they're in there, but they can't get their body to respond to their heart. And so what happens is, is, is this man, all he can do is, is blink a single eye. So he becomes a man trying to communicate to the world through his single eye. And a nurse actually helps him begin to communicate this way, painstakingly slow, communicating to the outside world, but only through the blinking of a single eye. And this communication gets enough to where his he actually forms words. He forms, he writes a book called The, the Diving Bell and the Butterfly. It becomes a movie, which wins a ton of awards. But just imagine the sheer willpower of wanting so badly to, to communicate out to the world this arduous process of just communicating through, through the single blinking of your eye. And I wonder if Jesus feels the same way about us as his church. That we are his body, his like his presence in the world. And he relies on us to embody his presence to the world. But do we, his body, respond to his heart? 
Right? Because Jesus is trying to communicate through the church. Like, we're just a blinking eye because we, we've disconnected our actions and our presence from the hearts of the one whom we are supposed to represent to this world. Because how many people in our culture would say, if you want to experience life with God, go to a church? I think because in so many ways, we've, we've left that mission of being the presence of Jesus to the world and, and come up with our own. Figure out our own way to attract a crowd, to get people in the door, and, and the presence of Jesus is there through a single eye, trying to communicate his presence, his existence, his reality to this world. So church, the one thing we have is the presence of God. If we don't, if we don't give that, we can, listen, we can do really nice things for people. We can be nice people. We can be a nice community for people come in, to come and enjoy. But there are lots of communities that can do that. The one thing we have is the presence of God. So how do we become that, right? How do we become this presence of God to, to our world? And I want to walk through the text sort of four, four ways that the church becomes and embodies the presence of God. And in many ways, this is the entire series, right? So again, if you're like, I want more on it, just come back for the next, you know, the next few weeks. But first, we need to, we need to reject all counterfeits. If we want to be the presence of God, we have to reject counterfeits. In 1999, Kevin Smith, a writer, director, Hollywood um, producer, uh, and a former Catholic, directed and released a movie called Dogma. And it was a critique of religion in America, particularly of the Catholic Church. But I think there was, there was some that was probably directed towards churches like our own. And, and the central critique was, was how the church tries to domesticate Jesus and sort of make him into this fun figure. And so the church began to sell this figurine called Buddy Christ in the movie. You can see the picture behind it. And it was a joke, certainly, like an exaggeration. But it was an exaggeration of something I've encountered repeatedly in the church. This shallow, Jesus is your homeboy, your best friend. Jesus just wants to, you know, nestle up and give you a hug. And, and, and we take the true Jesus, who he is, and we domesticate him down. We make him fit our agenda. We shrink Jesus into someone who would never challenge us, never confront us, never um, in any way challenge the way we're living or going about our life. Jesus essentially is our buddy who agrees with us in everything. And you contrast buddy Jesus... Uh, to the Jesus John encounter. So take that off, because I'm not going to read Revelation with that behind me. Uh, <laughs> the first thing, Jesus is, is clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, this, I'm not expecting this to mean anything to you, um, but what it meant in this day was, was Jesus here, he's wearing what a high priest wore in that day. And again, we don't have a high priest. Um, even if you grew up Catholic, the function of a priest in the Catholic Church is different than the high priest of... Um, of the Jewish people. But the high priest essentially guarded you and God. Like you, just, you couldn't walk into God's presence. Because, you know, as we read Isaiah 6, if you come into God's presence, your, your inadequacies, your sin, your, like the darkness inside, like you can't be in the presence of God. So the, the high priest stood between you and God. And if you wanted to meet with God, if you wanted to get into the presence of God, you had to go through the high priest. You had to bring a sacrifice. And the high priest could represent you to God, And so when we see Jesus dressed as the high priest, what that means is if you want to enter in the presence of God, you have to go through Jesus. There's no other way. Right? You can't just, Jesus, God is not your buddy, right? You can't just go out into the mountains and experience God. You have to go through Jesus. That's it. He's the high priest. There's no access to God outside of 
of Jesus. That's the first depiction of Jesus. The second we get in verse 14 is we read, The hairs of, of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Now this refers back to Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, what we get is this image of this powerful figure who comes in on the clouds. He's got white hair. And he is going to rule and, and rule over every king in the world. He's more powerful than all of the kings in the world. The most powerful kings you can imagine. This white-haired figure is more powerful. So Jesus is not just the high priest through whom you have to go to get to the presence of God. He's also the king of the universe. He's the king of the world. And then we last read in verse 15 that when Jesus speaks to John, his voice was like the roar of many waters. That Jesus didn't speak in this quiet, hushed tone. His voice is full of power. His voice is, is like Niagara Falls, loud. A voice of authority. Now, have you encountered Jesus as your authority? Do you want anything to do with Jesus as, as king, as most powerful being in the universe? Because if we're going to be a church that seeks the presence of Jesus, that's the only offer through which we are allowed to relate to him. We can't come to God as our comfort and then ignore his commands. We can't seek God's forgiveness, but then want him to leave us alone for most of our lives. We cannot expect him to help us. And then reject when he wants to lead us. Or to put it another way, like we cannot have the kingdom of Jesus, all that he offers us, forgiveness and comforts and peace. We can't have the kingdom of Jesus without having the king who brings that kingdom. So if you want the presence of God, you have to reject all counterfeits. You have to take Jesus in as he, as he is. You can't domesticate him. You can't shrink him down to your own size. You can't just make him the one who agrees with all of what you already think and say and do. So reject all counterfeits first. Second is, is embrace community's cost. And John's commitment to the church here is, I mean, it's pretty astounding. And he starts by pointing out uh, to the churches that are going to receive this letter that he is a partner with them in the tribulation. And the suffering and the persecution and the, the church being, being persecuted by the state. I'm a, I suffer with you in the tribulation. And then he says, I am here on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, to serve you as a pastor, to serve you as someone in the way of Jesus, I, I am suffering with you. I am in prison because of this. And, 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 just, and, and to, to, to be clear, when you read John's letters, it's not like the church was like this perfect experience in this utopian community. Communion, uh, community. Like John had tensions in the churches that he served. He had conflict in the churches that he served. And so they were like, why would you be a part of a community that, one, could put you in prison, right, put you on an island in exile, and two, like a, a community that often is going to hurt you and harm you and do things to you that make life more difficult, which is why many people today look at church community and say that's not worth the cost. The church community, as we know, is not worth the cost. And, and that works out in a number of ways. One is people who just stop going to church altogether. Some is people who come to church but aren't really engaged, involved in the community. It's sort of, I'm in, I'm out. There's a lot of ways that that is played out. But, but often, often, like the reason why I think people feel that are it's self-inflicted wounds by those of us in leadership. 
right? Terrible pastoral leadership. And you all know the stories if you've been paying attention. Pastors who, who spiritually abuse, who don't want to be shepherds but want to have their own little kingdoms and to tell people what to do. Church community that is hypocritical and judgmental of others. Pastors who, who, who have fallen, and those stories are all over the place. And we'll have more time to, to speak on those themes later. I'm just mentioning that this morning, that oftentimes the reason people become cynical towards the church is like we, we should be, sadly. Because the church became about some celebrity or some people, a group of people or a person, and not the presence of Jesus. That's one angle to take this sermon. I'm not going to take that angle. I'm just going to say, listen, I know those things. The, t- the angle I want to take is I want to pick up a, a, some of what I talked about Last week, which is that I pointed out one of the great challenges to the church today is that we live in a day when, like, the most important thing for us, for people, is our own personal happiness. And I I point out that theology is not outside the walls of the church, it's deeply integrated inside the walls of the church. This theology that the most important thing to me is my own personal happiness has shaped the church, and it's made the church much more like Walmart than the place where the presence of God dwells. Right, where everyone comes to pursue their own individual pursuit of happiness, we purchase religious goods and services at the lowest possible price. And I point out, the, like one of the best-selling books in Christianity, this is the central theme of that book, the central thesis of that book. It's this, it's you and only you are ultimately responsible for who you become and how happy you are. Now just imagine what that sentence which all of us are, we, we bake in that message every day of our week. Every commercial goes back to that. Every, every, almost every song we listen to goes back to that, that message. The movies we, we like. And then the church became about that. We'll, we will help you find your own purpose in life. And hopefully God's a part of that. But God's main job is to help you find your own individual purpose in life. Not to be the presence of God in the world. That statement destroys community. Let's just get, get granular. Tonight, when I go to community group, imagine instead of seeing the people who I'm gathered around as, as having insight that I don't have, as having wisdom that I don't have, an experience of God that I don't have, instead I walk into the room and say, I alone know what will make me happy, and I alone am responsible for that. Well, then everyone in my group is now take it or leave it, right? If, if, they, if they help me to my goal of happiness, I'm happy to be here. The moment they, they infringe on my goal to happiness, well, then I'm out. And here's, I, I make this promise, this is, there's very few things I, I say that I know will come true. This one I know will come true. Church community, community groups, whatever it is, will most assuredly ruin your own self-pursuit of happiness. Because people are annoying. And they get in your way, and they have a different perspective. And our own culture has decided, and that's why you've got to get away from those things. Don't be committed to other people. Don't be committed. You and you alone are responsible for how happy you will be. And this sentiment makes community a consumer experience. And a community built around consumer experience, right, these other people exist to bring me to my own personal happiness, has two devastating consequences to community. First is that community becomes impossible. All right, listen, the, the church will fail you. The last week after, after service, I had one of the, someone say maybe the most encouraging thing anyone has ever said to me in my life as, as a human being on this planet, but in particular with my vocation as a pastor. He said something to me that just was so encouraging. Um, 
And he finished that up, and then he looked at me, and he laughed. And I know behind it, the humor is actually a lot of deep pain. He looked at me, and he said, he said, you better not let me down. And it was, you know, it was, it was in good humor. It wasn't like, it wasn't a threat. Like, you better not. It was, it was good. Um, but he comes from an experience of a church where the pastor let him down in a significant way. And I told him in that moment, I was like, I will let you down. And reflecting, actually, in a church, we already, we already have let him down in a significant, meaningful way. And it, we walk, but we walked through that mistake together. We listened to one another. We prayed. We, we spoke to one another out of a place of community and understanding. And community was forged because we didn't give up on one another. But we entered into that place of two different ways of seeing the world. And, and community was formed. Because ultimately, what, if, if church is a consumer experience, then, then the one thing we all have in common here is that we all know that once I don't like it, I'm going to leave it. And it's impossible to build community when that's, that's the case. And I'm so thankful that's, that wasn't what Jesus said to us, right? right? I, can't imagine, I, 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 don't, I don't think when Jesus was being nailed to the cross by people who would one day become his church, that he was thinking to himself, what a, what a meaningful community I'm a part of right now. These people will be my sons and daughters one day. They'll be my brothers and sisters. Well, I'm so glad I'm a part of the church as they're nailing me. To, no. Community is not meant to be a consumer experience. So that's one devastating effect of community. The other, to tie back into the theme for this morning, is, is if the, the presence of God is the one thing we have to give the, to the world... You'll, the, the presence of God will never dwell in individualistic, consumeristic living. Right? If, if the one thing we have to offer the world is the presence of God, it will not come through people who say to themselves, I and I alone am responsible for my own happiness. And this is how this works out. Uh, in his book, Reappearing Church, Mark Sayers, he writes this. This consumer culture trains us to sit back and wait for bargains and benefits. Loosely committing, letting others do the job, consumer culture is risk averse. It teaches us to run from responsibility because it may reduce our options. We need people who are prepared to sacrifice to improve the life system of others at great risk to themselves. People who realize that renewal will most likely, renewal of the church in particular, renewal of the church will most likely encounter pain, difficulty, misunderstandings, and opposition, but choose to move ahead regardless. Right? The church needs people who are prepared to sacrifice their own happiness and good to improve the life system of others at great risk to themselves. And that's exactly what Revelation is going to be about. Church, you are going to face enormous pressures and suffering. That's what Revelation is. Jesus wins. Enter into that place of sacrifice. Be the presence of God in this world. You're, some of you are going to die. Some of you will not get out of this alive. But Jesus wins in the end, and the presence of God will fill this earth. And if the church is a place where we come and say, I'm not here to sacrifice. I'm here to be, to be, to be given. We cannot be the presence of God. That's not, it's not a community built on the ways of Jesus. And so it shouldn't surprise, I mean, the presence of Jesus visits John in prison. He's used his life to get the presence of God out into the world. And he is there, he is, he is literally sacrificing 
for it. And so that's the question for us. Are you willing to sacrifice to offer the presence of God to others? And one of the most important lessons I had to learn early on as a pastor to the church was that the church was not going to be like a utopian experience where we all, you know, we just, we had matching t-shirts and we giggle together all the time and this is so much fun. Like the church is where sin comes in, where, where God is breaking his new life into the world and the devil is hell bent on preventing that. This is a place of real struggle and there will be conflict and there will be disappointment and things will not go your way. And it's in those spaces, in exile on Patmos, that the presence of God comes. And if we're going to be a place that is the presence of God, we have to embrace community's cost. So embrace community's cost, uh, reject counterfeits. Thirdly, uh, if we want to be a place of the presence of God, we have to fall dead. So John, he's given this vision of Jesus, and, and this is what happens to him, verse 17. When I, saw, when I saw him, when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. Our John is, is in awe. He's overwhelmed. He's arrested by this vision of Jesus. And all he wants in this, this moment is the presence of Jesus. And maybe this, remember, okay, what does that mean? How do we, what do we as a church need to do? What are the five steps to become the presence of God? And this is what's hard. Is there's not five steps to, to enter into the presence of God. Of God, right? Revelation one. It's not the practice. It's not the how-to. It's like the door in, and the door in to a church and a people and a pr- that, that, that embody the presence of God are people who have fallen dead at the feet of Jesus. And what that means is, is the one, the only thing you want in life is Jesus, right? You've, you've forsaken all others, right? Everything else is is now. Less important, secondary, the one thing that has your all, that has your attention, that overwhelms you, is the person of Jesus. And I love the way how uh, Ignatius of Loyola, in his book, Spiritual Practices, he begins the book. Before he gets into, like, here's how you enter into the presence of God. Before he gets there, he sort of stakes a gate at the door in. And if you, you can't go into the, to the presence of God without coming through this gate. And this is the gate that's in Revelation 1. You can't enter, we can't be a place of the presence of God without this idea of falling dead. And here's how, what Ignatius of Loyola says. If you want into the presence of God, you have to start here. He says this. He said, we should not fix our desires on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, success or failure, a long life or a short one. For everything has the potential of calling forth in us a more loving response to our life forever with God. Our only desire and our one choice should be this. I want and choose what better leads to God's deepening life in me. That is falling dead at the feet of Jesus. That is, my imagination is not captured by getting further in my career, what my kids might accomplish in their life. My my attention and imagination is captured by how do I deepen the life of Jesus in my own. It's why John falls dead at the feet of Jesus and just says, what do you want from me? Do it. What are your desires fixed on? Wealth? Success? What do you really want in life? Because the beauty of the Christian way is that if the one thing you want in life is God, then as Ignatius says, everything has the potential of deepening that life of God in you. No matter how long or short a life, no matter how healthy or sick, no matter how wealthy 
or poor. Everything has the potential of calling forth in you the life of God. The question is, do you want that? Do we want that? Right? Do we want to fall dead at his feet? <laughs> and the irony is like once John falls dead, his anxiety, his fear, his concerns are washed away. And so let me just like encourage you to, to come to that place, to fall dead at Jesus' feet and to hear him speak the same words to you that he spoke to John, that John is given this incredible vision of Jesus. He's overwhelmed. He's intimidated. He falls dead at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. But I am now alive forever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. What else in life could bring you meaning but this person? And if you want his presence in your life, you have to come to him as the one who holds the keys to death in Hades, as the first and the last, who has all authority in heaven on earth. And yet John, Jesus doesn't stop John there, right? It's not like, okay, John, you know, this is great. This is an individual experience of God. I hope you feel better about yourself. Goodbye. No, what he says, okay, John, stand up. It's time to go to work on our church. And I want you to write to the church what's about to take place. And I want them to hear from me so that they can live faithfully in the time that is at hand. And, and these words to John, spoken on Patmos 2,000 years ago, were so real in the, within the presence of Jesus that we're reading them today, 2,000 years later, in Kansas. So reject, if we want to be the presence of God as a community, we have to reject all counterfeits. We have to be about the presence of the real Jesus. We have to embrace community's cost. The church, is, it's going to be hard to get the presence of God into this place, into the world. And thirdly, fall dead. And last and finally, we need to light our lamp. I think one of the most encouraging things for me as I've studied through Revelation 1 through 3 is the image of Jesus you get in verses 12 and 13 when we read that when John turns around, he sees the seven golden lampstands, but then in the midst of the lampstands is Jesus. Jesus is in the midst of his church. It's just a pot, like to name for a minute, Jesus, his presence is here right now. We, Christ community, are a lampstand. He is in the presence of his lampstands. Jesus' presence is here now, which is why I will not give up on the church. Why I'm not going to just go off and do my own thing and, 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 and why ultimately all of my work is, is tried not just to get people to Jesus, but get people to into the church community where the presence of Jesus most lives. And if we make this place about that, about us gathering around the presence of Jesus, then as we leave, right, the lamp, which should, should be bright here, all of us go off into our individual places on Monday and are the presence of God wherever we are. Whatever your presence is, no matter how high your position is or how low your position is, no matter how important you are or how unimportant you think you may be, we leave this place having gathered around the person of Jesus to go and be his presence into the world. In his book, Prayer, Philip Yancey, he tells the story of when he visited a leper colony in India called Green Pastures. And leprosy, it's a terrible disease, and in most cultures, if you, if you contract leprosy, the only way to make a living is to beg for, for money. That leprosy is a devastating disease. It eats away your skin to where your body parts. I mean, your body just literally begins to fall away. 
And so Yancey and his wife were walking through the courtyard of Green Pastures when, when a woman who is, was barely recognizable to them begins to come up to them, to, to Philip and his wife. Her forearms had been eaten off by her leprosy. Her legs were gone from the knee down. She was bleeding from the bandages that were meant to cover those wounds. But she was insistent on getting to Philip and to meeting him and his wife. And Yancey acknowledged that he was repulsed by her. It was, it was a hard sight to see. But his wife, Janet, who was a social worker, had a far more compassionate response. And she knelt down to embrace this woman named uh, Danmaya. Yancey's guide then introduced them and, and said Danmaya uh, was one of the most devoted church members of the place. It was mostly uh, Hindus in this, this leper colony, but there were a few Christians, and Danmaya was the most faithful she was a prayer warrior, always worshiping in the chapel, intentionally praying for and meeting any guests who walk into their community. And so Yancey knelt down to embrace Denmaya with his wife. And as he, he kneels down to embrace her, he hears Denmaya singing, Jesus loves me, to his wife, Janet. They took a picture, and Yancey, he wrote this about every time he looks at this picture, what, what he sees. As I see two beautiful women, my wife smiling sweetly, wearing a brightly colored Nepali outfit she had bought the day before, holding in her arms an old crone who would flunk any beauty test ever devised except the one that matters most. Out of that deformed, hollow shell of a body, the light of God's presence shines out. The Holy Spirit found a home. A woman devoted to, to prayer and to worship, to a church community, was a lampstand, the presence of God. And I just wonder how many would have said that about me this week. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, ga we gather around one thing here. It's the person and presence of Jesus. We can't manipulate that. We're not in charge of that. He is, he is our high priest. He is the king of the universe who comes on the clouds. And he is the one present here. And we submit to his person and authority that, that we might taste the fruits of his kingdom, of forgiveness, of kindness, of grace. That we'd hear his words and they'd become our lives. Do not fear, for he is the first and the last. Amen.